Picture this. The journey ahead starts here together, and together we can build a brighter future. You are listening to Illuminating Hope, a podcast of Hope House. Welcome to Illuminating Hope. I'm your host, Tina Johnson, Community Partnership Manager, alongside my co-host, Marianne Matheny, CEO of Hope House. Today, I want to welcome radio podcast host, inspirational keynote speaker, cable TV MLB analyst, life executive coach, former NLB player, husband and father, Les Norman. Les grew up without much in life. An abusive childhood could have left him broken, but he he used the wrong roadmap to find the right places. He often heard phrases like, you'll never make it, or you're not good enough. But instead of believing the negative voices, he became driven to achieve the success he wanted to. He learned what true joy is through faith and family. Most importantly, he used his gift of encouragement to help others in life. He has had a remarkable ride, earning a junior Olympic gold medal, playing Major League Baseball, and even winning on the hit game show Wheel of Fortune. But with all of those experiences, the best one of all is being husband to his bride and best friend of 26 years, Kristen, and being baseball coach and dad to Amazing Sons Mac, who is 22, and Tate, who is 18. Learn more about Les Norman at lesnorman.com. Les, welcome to our show. It is an honor to be here. Uh, this podcast suite is amazing. It's all I feel like you guys are bringing out the A squad here. This is impressive. Thanks for having me. Okay, so from what I've read about you, you are a childhood survivor of abuse. Talk to me about your story. You would think that over the years, I've asked this a lot, and that, oh, it's more painful or more. This actually is freeing for me because, one, it can help a lot of other people, and, two, your, your story is not what happens to you. It, it really is not. I mean, we were created to do incredible things, and sometimes bad things happen to us, and yet it doesn't have to define us and who we are there. So I grew up in a small town in Illinois, born in Michigan. Michigan, I think. And then, uh, no, I was, but I don't remember any of it. And we moved to Pennsylvania, and I remember little bits and pieces of that part of it. But the bits and pieces that I remember were a father that was an alcoholic and screaming and physical and fighting the neighbors and building my Lincoln Logs. I loved Lincoln Logs, and I'd sit on the floor and build them because I needed a respite. There was just yelling yeah. all the time, all over the place, and I, I lived in fear. And so I would go out and ride my bike, and this, of course, was an age where you could just go, and when the street lights come on, you got to come home. Well, for me, when the street lights were on, it didn't matter if I was home or not. So go out, ride my bike, throw in rocks. You invent things to do. I loved Lincoln Logs and Matchbox cars. I would play with those by myself, or I would build Lincoln Logs, and my dad would just walk by and purposely just kick the Lincoln Logs like he was kicking field goals. And I'd start crying, and then he'd get mad, and he'd hit me or push me or spank me for being a what he would call a wimp or use some some other languages. And so it was, it was constant fear. Until about seven years old, the abuse was more of the language. I saw him push my mom, but not really reach out and hit her. But the, the pervasive language, the constant yelling, screaming, and stress. I remember being in fear all the time. And so 
so at age seven, my dad had left, and I remember a small inkling of thinking, okay, at, at least now it's going to be normal. But the place that we lived in was very, very low budget. I didn't know how we were going to make it. Even at seven, you're worrying about money and how you're going to survive. And I also remember thinking, we don't have anywhere to go. We, we don't have any family. We don't have any shelters. I didn't know what a shelter was, but I do remember thinking, we really don't have anywhere to go. We didn't even have a car. Once my dad left, all of a sudden we were just on this airplane and we were heading to Illinois. And I guess my biological father had had some relatives there. Um, all of his brothers were there and there were some aunts and uncles. And we showed up at this beat down trailer park. And I remember walking in thinking, is this where we're going to live? Now, from where we lived in this small apartment, this was an upgrade. But I remember going there and, okay, we have a home, we have a roof over our head, and we're going to see all these people that I'd never met. But that's really when things started to go downhill. Dad had always had, there were always beer cans all over the place, but now it was constant. He was angry all the time. He was yelling and screaming all the time. And I found my respite, my getaway then was going to watch kids play baseball because I wasn't a very good athlete. Isn't that interesting? That we'll is- get to it. God prepares you even when you don't know you're being prepared. Right. And so it was going outside, riding my bike, watching local kids play. I was the new kid, lived on the poor side of town, and it was, I didn't care. That I was getting made fun of. I started to get bullied almost immediately. But just to see kids hanging out with other kids and even see a friendship kind of had this bond for me, even if they wouldn't let me be a part of it. And I had this second grade teacher named Mr. Kekka, who, again, when you tend to find things that when get your mind off of the pain you're dealing with and the suffering, even if you don't really know you're suffering from something, the fear that's always involved, the, the times when you're either eating or you're playing sports or you're at school or you're doing something different or you're asleep, when those are the times that you can relax, there's something wrong. But Mr. Kekka was a really important father figure in my life because for some reason, I don't know, I was good at math and now I'm not. It's just weird how that works. I'm just, I'm not. But he was... He showed so much interest in me that I would stop going out for recess. And I would cry some days when, when I was with him, and I would tell him about home. And nothing ever really happened that anything got solved. But I quickly advanced into the fifth grade math book. And in second grade, I was teaching fifth graders math. And, and that was all great, but yet I still had to go home. There was one day in particular where I had watched my dad. And, and over the years, seven, eight, nine, ten, my older sister was with us. And there was a, a situation where my dad had come home drunk. And he was supposedly was a construction worker and he would supposedly build power plants. And at this part of Illinois, about an hour, hour and a half south of Chicago, there were a lot of nuclear power plants within about a 200 mile radius. And he was always supposedly going there. And I remember thinking about 10, 11 years old, construction workers seem to have pretty good jobs, but we have no food in the house. I'm wearing the same clothes. It's interesting that when you're seven, you grow, but your clothes don't. So high waters can come really quick. And I get made fun of there. Well, one time my dad came home and he was drunk and this was a really, rough day. And I remember my mom was working three jobs, which didn't compute for me. She's got these, I never see my mom. She's exhausted all the time. And she's trying to go to school functions. She's trying to help us. And yet she's out doing her own thing. And my dad came home and he was just looking for a fight. I remember a few years earlier, uh, my dad was, was really mad, but drunk to the point where he couldn't stand up. He took a swing at my mom and my mom saw it coming and she ducked it and then reared back and punched him, blew him up. I mean, flipped him over the couch. And I remember in that moment thinking, wow, my mom is tough. She could battle for us. And 
everything is really good and we're safe. Well, on this particular day, a couple years later, I realized what the reality was. And, and my dad was, he was a serial abuser. Um, he was angry. He didn't show a lot of care about us. Come to find out later, he'd had a whole other family and been had an affair with my mom for years and so much was going on. I was sitting at the kitchen table this day and I said, mom, right hand, because I'd seen him clench his right hand and he was hiding it behind her and he'd had her up against the wall with his left hand. She didn't see it coming. She had glasses on and he punched her with her glasses on her face. And I remember seeing the blood like some horrible horror movie splatter against the wall. And my sister immediately screamed and ran out the front door, which was interesting. It was almost as if my mom was taking the punch for us because my dad wouldn't let us leave. He was kind of standing by the door of the trailer. And I saw her glasses explode, the blood flying, and I screamed, followed my sister out, and it ended up part of the lens went into my mom's eye, curved around her eye, and was a millimeter away from severing her retina. So the eye survived, but she was messed up, and we went, luckily we, we were two blocks away from the police station. They knew as soon as we walked in, we didn't have to say anything. They knew who we were by that time. Immediately, police car took off. The ambulance went, we rode in the ambulance and all that, and eventually it came to a point where my mom took him back. And I was thinking, all that he's put us through, we're, we're escaping through the windows at night. We're Watching him beat you and hold you down. I would come home from school and my friends are with me when you finally make friends and they'd let us off and we'd look out the bus window and there is my dad sitting on my mom in the gravel driveway. She's got no clothes on. He'd ripped her clothes off and he's punching her and beating on her. And this is broad daylight and my people I go to school with are seeing this. And so we run up and we're helpless to do anything. That night we're picking rocks out of my mom's back, blotting the blood. And so that was kind of a, a daily routine for my sister and I. Now, my sister went through a lot more horrible abuse than I did. And, and with permission, I can share this. My sister's give me permission to share this, but um, my sister was sexually abused by my dad for years and was told that if she told anybody, he would kill me and my mom and then her. And so she took one for us and didn't say anything until finally she had enough and was almost within an inch of her life. And, and that's a whole other story. So battled that for years. And then finally, at the end of the story is one day I came home, I was 12 years old, and I didn't hear anything. There was no noise, no fighting. And it was unusual for me. You know, there's a big difference between eight years old and 11, 12 years old. You're starting to get used to things. And I still, I was a small kid. I mean, in eighth grade, I wasn't even five feet tall yet. I was one of the smallest kids in the whole junior high. I was so deathly afraid of my father, and I never tried to stand up to him because he, even though he was short, he was angry and strong. And so I said, Mom, where's Dad? Like, looking around, like, okay, where can I go? Where can I avoid? And she said, he's not here. And I said, Mom, I, I can see and hear that. He's not around because you guys aren't fighting. She said, no, he's not here. He's never coming back. And I remember thinking at 12 years old, and 12-year-olds shouldn't think this way, but I remember sitting outside on the steps for a moment thinking this is the best day of my life because I'm not going to have to fight anymore or scream anymore or come home and ride in another ambulance or have to call the police again and I slept really well that night but then from age 12 to about 20 the rebellion began and the fatherlessness began and then I couldn't trust anybody anymore especially men that would come in and out of our lives and so it took me a long time to get over that and a lot of counseling and all that. But I'll end with this. I think back and luckily at that time we had an uncle that we would go to, but there was no Hope House. There was no homeless shelter. There was no public place to go. Nobody that would listen. The police would come and break up the fight, but my dad never went to jail. My mom lived in fear and oftentimes she would keep taking him back. And it wasn't until, it's interesting, Marianne, you said this to me a few years ago on my show. And I knew this because I'd seen the stats, but it reminded me, and it's it's 
been burned in my brain ever since. And then I followed up with the stats. A lot of times women go back to their abusers because there's no better choice. Because they think, well, I can't make it on my own. And so this is what I have to bear because I have no money. I have no place to go. And so I wonder how life would have been different. But because my mom took one for the team, I think back and I'm not glad we didn't have a place to go, but because of my platform now and what I do with TV and radio and speaking and all that, if I have to do it all over again, I would go through every single thing again if this message can help other people understand they don't have to go through that. People that are being abused, it's mostly women, I believe, and you are worthy. You can have a good life and there is a safe place. And so, uh, yeah, it's I can't believe from back then it's so still so surreal and real. And now I'm in my mid-50s talking about it still getting emotional about it but uh, I appreciate you having me on and asking me that very much you're glad to have you here and appreciate you sharing because yeah. I know that you've shared this story before but mm-hmm. I, I don't imagine that it gets easier that it's any less you don't have those feelings as you're sharing that. it's painful but yeah. different right. in a different way but I know I just listening to that I feel what those emotions that that you were describing and I do think as you were sharing that my thought was so many times we get asked why does she go back why why doesn't she leave that's the most commonly asked question that we get in our work and there's so many reasons and you even though you didn't say it you said it as to why why she went back because I'm imagining she didn't have any other choices she didn't I mean she needed to take care of you too right and sometimes you're between two really bad choices and and you have to make the best and we have heard from people over and over and over again is that I had to take care of my children I had to make sure that my children and even though he wasn't providing a lot there was something that he was providing that we weren't homeless right I mean right that was it and I remember back then Marianne thinking I'm so mad at my mom how could she do this to us but again Little kids don't understand. And I didn't understand, yes. And so later on in life, I looked at my mom when I realized and said, I'm so sorry that I didn't get it because we all might be dead, gone without you. Life could be dramatically and drastically different. I think about being a, a former Major League Baseball player and being able to go to college for four and a half years. And it wasn't too long after that day when I was 12, like, Dad's gone, and here comes the rebellion, you know? And uh, just the sacrifices that she made every day, the choices that she made every day, she could have run, she could have abandoned us. I mean, I see as as now an ordained pastor and and working with kids, I see kids that get abandoned a lot that are left at churches and and here, other places. And I'm not pretending to know what's behind every face as the drama unfolding. We don't know the situation. But my mom sacrificed every day and put her literally, put her life on the line every day. And I'm not sitting here and I'm not having this life or this incredible bride or these incredible two kids without her making those decisions every day. And I'm sure that that you have shared your gratitude with her. I have, and, yes. And that's, I mean, that's a mother's love right there. And I know that that doesn't always make sense to people, mm-hmm. that that you stay in this kind of a relationship where you return and with your children, that that seems the better of the of the evils that you have to choose from. Right. But people are forced to make those decisions every single day. Yeah. And I know that to be able to share that, so you have a message that you're going to reach people that in a way that we could never reach people because you're sharing from your heart what happened to you and why your mom chose what she chose. So that's very powerful. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. It's one of, you know, when you're younger or even when you step into a major league uniform for the first time, there's that little bit of ego and selfishness that can sit in like, oh, look at me. Look what I've done. It's 
my platform or whatever that happens. You work hard, you get there, and people know who you are. You're flying all over the country and all over the world and all those things. And that's not what the platform's about at all. These things that my mom sacrificed for, if that platform helps me to help other people and to shed light on what's really going on out there, and there is a safe place for these families that they can go and they don't have to stick in those abusive situations. And that isn't their lot in life. And that a great life isn't for all those other people and not just that person. That is possible. And people like you all are making that happen. So thank you for all that you do. It's a life choice for, for us. I, I know that's Definitely. It. I do want to share, too, that coming into shelter or leaving isn't always what people want or need at that point in their lives, which is why we offer this wide range of services so that we can reach people mm-hmm. where they are and they get to make decisions about their lives that fit for them. So shelter is often not a choice that people make. They make other choices like therapy or needing help with the court system or medical needs, those kinds of things. And that's what I like about what we do is that we say, here, here's all this that we can offer you. What is it that you need right right now in your space? Because it's not about me telling somebody what they need right now. They are the only ones that can decide that. It's very sad for someone who's been in this work for a long time to know that people went through the things that they went through when services just weren't not as robust as they are now. They're just things weren't available. And so people did, you know, you experience things in isolation that you wonder, gosh, if you would have had something. But I'm grateful that you had a teacher who connected with you and and helped you be able to move on. Well, thanks. And it's interesting that I remember one of the things that my mom dealt with too was judgment. Mm -hmm. Like she's, people are going to judge me. They're going to judge us. And again, I got the whole bullied in school. People knew because we lived in such a small town. We were the town joke for a while. The old beat up car that my dad gave us and here he's driving this Cadillac around. The clothes that we wore and just all, just that stigma where we lived. Oh, the trailer park kid and mm-hmm. things along those lines. And so that's hard as a kid. But what people I think don't realize is oftentimes that's hard for the mom or right. for the person that is being abused. And even that decision well, I, I, I could go to shelter or I could do those things and they just choose not to because they don't want to be the laughing stock or something like that. There's, there's a myriad of reasons, I'm sure. And, and things that reasons I don't even know about and so yeah it's it's important I know that it wasn't until I bottled everything up until I was in my 30s and the father wounds that I carried I carried them because well I'm tough when my dad left I remember also thinking I think I was around 16 at the time I said you know if I ever see him again I'm gonna beat him within an inch of his life that I'm gonna let him heal I'll tie him to a chair if I have to I'm gonna let him heal and then I'm gonna remind him oh remember this thing you did and then I'm gonna Beat him with an inch of his life for that. Just revenge, revenge, hate, anger, bitterness. All those things were welling up in me. And so, and they would eventually manifest. If I wouldn't have gone to counseling in my 30s when my little five foot one, 98 pound bride, who's tougher than I am in every way, <laughs> said, You need to go get some help because you're going to lose your family. And that was my wake up call. So, good for her. Oh, amen, sister. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I remember one time I was standing there and we were talking something about respect and I was in a cranky mood and she looked at me and said, yeah, you should respect me. And she just kind of said, well, then earn it. And I turned and left the room. <laughs> she was dead yeah. on right. Couldn't but, hear that at the moment. But. Well, no, I'm glad that I did, yeah. though, because yeah. she was right. It wasn't an angry thing at all and she wasn't and it wasn't some big blow up argument or something like that but it was just it was a weak goofy thing that I said and obviously it was coming from a different place but it's one thing that's great about being married to your best friend for a long time Mm -hmm. and we all understand that is that sometimes it's they don't tell you what you want to hear they tell you what you need to hear it's what accountability and love is all about 
And so the fact that you offer that service too is huge. It's a life changer. It's a game changer. Uh, I'm so thankful. And, and I hope that people that hear this, if they need it, they'll take that option. Because again, it doesn't make you less of a person. Oh, I need help. And this is so embarrassing. I am all of who I am because I was able to go get some help and iron through that. I couldn't have been the husband that I am, the father that I am, that any kind of man and human being that I am, if I wouldn't have gone and said, hey, I need some help. You know, it's interesting because I have been in this work for what, 31 years. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time. Thank you for that. Well, yes. and I have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration for survivors. Yeah. For what often, you, you mentioned it, you know, people think you're weak or that, you know, the, the judgments. I have never met people as strong as those who have survived. There's no way you could have survived what you survived, your mom, your sister, without that strength. And that's what I think we need to focus on is that this, there's not something wrong with people who've experienced abuse. Right. It's What's wrong is the person who's doing the abusing. But the people who experience that come out stronger, scarred for sure, but valuable human beings that don't always know their own worth. Right. And that's, that's what I think is one of our goals and one of the things we work hard to do is that people understand their worth and who they are and that what happened to them, and you said it, what happened to them isn't who they are. It's something that happened to them and helped form who they are, but inherently they're good people that something really tragic has happened to. Right. Yeah. And when they finally find their worth, their voice is very loud. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very exciting. What do you think is the most important thing that people should know about childhood abuse? Wow. Where do I start? Uh, this is episode, this, this would turn into episode 37 or 38. Are you asking from a, from the, the kid's standpoint? I would say from a child's standpoint. There was an event that Marianne and I were at one time, and two childhood survivors had to leave because they weren't completely healed and what they went through in sure. their childhood. So I would think from a child's perspective, mm-hmm. what do you think is important for people to know? It's hard when you're someone, when you're an adult that has never experienced it. You can read everything you want in a textbook. And it's important that we have professionals that help. But to also have the compassion and understanding. You know, like I say, behind every face, there's a drama unfolding. And if now, I'm a boy, so understand this, that, you know, the brain goes until 25. That's what the science says. <laughs> I think that I'm still growing in my brain 30 years after that age. But And, and yes, girls mature faster, but to understand that even the most mature of kids that have been in an abusive situation, you really have to make sure that you you ask questions and you take care of them. And don't ever assume that you know what's going on with them or judge them. I've met some kids that have been in my kids' classes because, you know, when my boys were younger, oh, daddy's coming to speak at our our assembly and and that's really cool. And and trust me, my boys now 22 and 18 are not impressed. They're not (laughs) impressed with dad. Um, well, at least not in the whole baseball realm and all that, that we've got a great relationship. And yes, they're, they honor their father very well. But um, just seeing these kids that are the bullies or the aggressors, and my sons might say, oh, he's a bully. And, and, and I get it from the kid's standpoint, because you're afraid and you're angry that someone is hurting you or you have to fear them. And it's what I had to learn about my biological father. And it's what we need to learn about everybody else is, number one, try to always understand from the, uh, the kids that are getting abused that you don't know what's really going on. And you need to keep asking the right questions and keep helping them 
them, even when things go on, don't just assume and don't let go of them. Keep hanging on and get in it with them and stay with them for a long time. Again, I was in my 30s, almost 40, before I, I finally was able to wake up and feel free from all of it. And then sometimes from like the kid standpoint of the, the bully side, which oftentimes bullies, when they let go, can turn into that. But also understand too that there's an insecure place they're coming from as well. And if, if we would spend time really focusing on those kids as well as adults and helping them, maybe we might be able to, to circumvent what they could turn into later on. And so I guess the quick answer would be stay involved with them if possible. Get involved in their lives. Ask the right questions. Keep them in counseling and just love on them in a way that helps them understand you are worth something. Kids loved my autograph over the years. They've loved that and that's great and I've never turned one down. I still to this day get grown men sending me to my home address baseball cards to sign and I'll sign I'll sign them all. It's cool and it's interesting. It kind of creeps my wife out a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it would. The internet's a strong thing. People can buy your address. It's okay. I'll I'll protect you, sweetheart. It's all right. But, um, and she's tougher than I am. Like I said, (laughs) she can protect me. She's got this. Yeah, she's got it. But it's just the idea is that although that's really cool, when you ask them a question, when you stop and ask the kid a question, and ask about their life and get involved when they feel important because they look at you like you're an adult. You're a major league baseball player, former baseball player. You were, you've done this and you've done, you're the keynote speaker. Oh, that's really cool and all that. And when you ask them about them and you lift them up, Mm -hmm. they may have never been lifted up before. So again, behind every face is a drama unfolding. Get involved in kids' lives. Continue to stay involved in kids' lives and let them know they're worthy. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that the survey was done of kids and what they wanted most from their parents. And it was to take time and listen to what they had to say. I think that would go such a long way. So let's talk about how famous you are. So (laughs) you... uh, Infamous. (laughs) I think it's so interesting that you just really, like, I'm a former Major League Baseball player. Like, it's just no big deal. And we were talking before that that is, like, the dream of all young baseball players in our country is to become a Major League Baseball player. And that's a dream that you accomplished. Tell us about that. Interesting thing is that it was the escape. I only went because I remember it was the day I came home, mom and dad were fighting, and the popped into my head was that, oh, I passed City park which is two blocks away on the way home from school summer was almost here and they were like three on three and they were playing baseball slow pitch together and they were hanging out and I had a couple of kids in my classes but they weren't friends of mine because that was during the bullying stage and they didn't want to be around me and so all I could think of was I'd had this old beat up glove that my mom had bought for like a dollar in a garage sale it didn't have all the webbing but I just grabbed it put it on my bike thing left my books underneath the stairs and I just took off I didn't even go in the house and I remember thinking oh well they think I didn't come home I'm gonna get in trouble I'm like, well, I'll just delay it for a couple hours. I'm going to get probably yelled at anyway. So I went down there, and I remember asking them to play, and they wouldn't let me play because the teams were uneven. That'd be four on three. Well, then one other kid came and then said, well, can I play now? Because now the teams will be even. And there was another excuse. But again, it didn't matter. It was a better option for me because I'd rather be watching them. So that summer, I had played a little bit of baseball like in Little League, but, but I was not a good athlete. I was tiny. I could throw the ball far, but I remember my first tryout, I hit the ball and I ran to third base instead of first base. <laughs> I I didn't know. It was, a, it was a white square. Let me just go to one of them. It was the closest one. I was on that side of the batter's box. So eventually they let me play, but they stuck me in right field. 
and the ball never came to right field. And I didn't realize that back then that's where they put the quote unquote the kids that aren't the best players in right field. But I, I went out there, and every time you went by the park, you knew where I played because the ball may never come out, but there were no dandelions in right field. I picked them all, <laughs> I cleaned it, I cleaned my my baseball room all the time. But as I got older, I just started to develop a love for the game, and you start getting into your own, and you grow a little bit, and you get some talent. I got a little bit of talent. I went from probably my graduated eighth grade. I was about four. 11, 5 feet. I was a small kid. And by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was 5'10". So I was real gangly and skinny and I could run real fast. But I started to notice there was a little bit of talent in me. And again, I had this line of coaches and men in my life that knew home life, knew my rebellion, knew I wasn't who I was outwardly showing. I was trying to put that tough exterior on. And they stayed with me and they developed me and gave me the time of day and got in my face, not in, a, in an abusive bad way, but you need to knock it off. And if I needed to go run 17 laps, go run 17 laps. It was that love that I needed, the discipline. And so as I got through high school, we, we'd won a state championship and I was good. And there was only one college that came calling. I thought it was, oh man, I might get drafted and I'm going to get all these offers. I got one. And it was from a college 20 minutes away and, and they weren't even going to let me pitch. And I said, well, I don't want to just pitch. I want to play outfield. And they said, Okay, we'll let you play a little outfield. But I knew they just wanted me to pitch. And so I went to this college, played football my freshman year, and was getting crushed. I was about 5'10", 160, returning kicks in college. I was getting blown up. I mean, I got hit one time, and I woke up a minute later looking through the ear hole, and my face mask was on the side. So I'm thinking, okay, football's not my future. I'm done with that. No way. I told the coach after the season, I think I'm going to stick with baseball. He said, son, that's probably a good idea. (laughs) And And the football coach was actually my baseball coach, too. So you know he was being honest with me because he said I want you for baseball anyway but you're going to get crushed doing this sport so I just I learned and I just worked really hard I think the turning point came my freshman year of college it was five o'clock in the morning and we were practicing at this old armory it was 10 below zero outside in Joliet Illinois snow outside and what am I doing? I, I don't want to get up this early. I'm in college. I want to have fun. I want to do my own thing. And I just saw these kids in there working. And it was this voice in my head that said, look, you're going to regret everything. This is your crossroad moment. Either you give everything that you have or get out of the game and do something else. And so I decided that I'm just going to hustle. If I have to throw up from the running and all that, I'm going to do it. And in two years, I was an All-American, and I'd already had a, an Olympic gold medal under my belt. And I wanted to get drafted and play. And so, yeah, I got through college, was the All-American, two-time All-American. We lost the national championship game, uh, went to St. Francis for four years, was drafted by Boston after my junior year. Turned that down. I was drafted by the Royals my senior year. Had a horrible senior year, but the Royals, I guess they had a mercy draft pick they needed to <laughs> fill. And, <laughs> so they drafted me. I went out my first season and uh, was not good. I'd separated my left shoulder diving into home plate. I was hitting about a buck sixty, and as a twenty-fifth round pick hitting one sixty, the writing's on the wall. Now, I, my my signing bonus offer with the Red Sox was thirty thousand, and then the first well, the first offer was two thousand, and then I had a really good summer league. And I was t- I had a really good junior year. Was the first team All American. We'd gone to the national championship game and lost, and just I'm piling up all these good stats. And so they they finally came back and said we have thirty thousand. And the arrogant me said, well, I think maybe you need to come up with fifty thousand because that'll pay for the Ford Mustang at the, the, at the down the street because I saw this gray convertible Mustang that I had to have right back then you know I didn't know what was under the engine what was it with the Mustang back then I don't know it was this 80s 90s thing and it was. Uh, yes I don't know but obviously my head wasn't on right <laughs> 
And the scout looked at me and said, son, after hearing that, I think that maybe you're not Red Sox material after all. So I'm going to go ahead and pull that offer. So as of right now, the offer's off the table. So good luck with your career. So I'm like, fine. I'm good at this game. I'll be fine. My senior year, I didn't realize that I was starting to fall into depression and suffering from anxiety. And I didn't hear the word. I didn't know. But the uniform I was wearing, the baseball uniform, had started to become the mask that I was doing. It was the going out, life of the party. Put that on. Hey, look at me. I'm all this and that. And then when that started falling apart, I had nothing to grab onto. In reality, later on, I realized that what I was trying to cling to was anything that could take me away from the pain of my past and my dad. That's all it was. I was still hurt from my dad. Still didn't know where he was, still never heard from him. Um, I was actually was was told that he was dead, and come to find out he wasn't. And he died the year I got drafted. He was actually alive. I didn't know this until I was in my 30s, where when someone finally told me the truth, it took me a month of internet research and actually found how he had passed away. He was homeless, had liver disease, was blind, trying to cross a major highway, got hit by a car, hit and run. And they had to identify him through his dental records. And so eventually I found that out. And so that first year, I'd separated my shoulder. I'd worked really hard. It was another crossroad moment where I said to the coach, okay, I don't know how to hit with a wood bat. I'm struggling. Obviously, they're going to release me. You tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And I figured this could be my last season playing baseball. I might have to actually go to work. Oh, my gosh, go to work. You know, Again, the arrogance and youth of a young man at the right. time. And so my average started to get up. And when I started to play humbly for the name on the front instead of the name on the back and stop taking myself too seriously, the game started to open up for me a little bit. And then I separated my shoulder second time my season was over. And I needed major reconstruction on my shoulder. So I went home, had reconstruction, was able to be healthy for spring training, which was I probably wasn't ready, but I didn't tell them. I just sucked up the pain. And I just went through spring training with a different attitude. And the the manager at the time that was going to single A was my A-ball manager in low A. And he begged him to let me take him. And so I went as the fifth outfielder on the low A-ball team, and my days were numbered. Back up just a little bit, the short version of that story was we had a coach coach who was a father figure to me, the only coach that I would go to chapel service on Sundays. And when I was at chapel service, I would go to chapel service on Sunday because I raised so much hell for six days that I needed <laughs> right. some cleanup on Sunday. You know, I figured I'll just go get a little bit of cleanup. How'd that work then, for you? Um, not so good. <laughs> it didn't work at all. But the thing that really got me, I heard the gospel message. Mm. I'd heard about salvation and Jesus, and I'd heard those things about giving my life to him. And it was all good and all that. But the thing that really helped me understand it was watching Bobby Meacham and the way he coached me and respected me. When I failed, he always still gave me respect. When I was successful, he didn't over-inflate it. He was always steady. We once lost a game by 15 runs. I was not happy. I was a competitor. I was not happy. And after the game, I saw him walking out. He had three little kids at the time. And his kids came, and they're climbing on him, and they're climbing on his legs. And he kept his arms up, and he didn't scoop them up. And he walked with his kids over to his wife. And uh, I remember thinking, I wish I had that. I I missed that. But then I also thought, he kissed his wife first, and he hugged his wife first. We just got our tails waxed by 15 runs, and I could see what was really important to him. He lived out his faith. He loved his family. And he wasn't, his work wasn't in baseball because he was a former big leaguer who had to play for a really mean, arrogant, angry coach that released him. He's a shortstop for the Yankees that played for George Steinbrenner. And he lived out his faith. 
And so that drew me in, and I gave my life to the Lord that same year. So the next year in A-ball, this is the story kind of ends. I go to A-ball, and two outfielders get hurt. So instead of the backup, now I'm in the starting lineup. Still with the attitude of, hey, I'm just happy to be here. If you want me to sell hot dogs, chase foul balls, I'm <laughs> good. I'll do it in uniform. I don't care. Let's play. Let's have fun. My all-star break of that year, I was leading the league in hitting. And then instead of going to high A, I got promoted to double A. And then a year after that, I was in the major leagues. Crazy story. Awesome story. <laughs> that is awesome. Awesome that story. Is. I, I love how you went through that, though the transformation that, that happened yeah. for you. The interesting part is that it was amazing. I can remember all these amazing things and getting just to even play two years in the big leagues as a backup is more, just one day is more than most young athletes that want to play Major League Baseball. And I used to be said, oh, I only played two years. I don't have good stats and all that. And I remember a man said, are you kidding me with that attitude? I said, yeah, I think I know what you're going to say. It's like one day. You deserve nothing. You earn the right to be there and you have to continue to play, but you don't deserve any Anything. So don't you dare poo-poo the, oh, I'm just this or that. You're always going to be a Major League Baseball player. And I didn't realize this, but since 1885 until 2023, how many people do you think ever wore that Major League uniform even for just one day? How many do you think? Well, I can't even imagine. Yeah. My guess at the time was over a million because it's been over 100 years. Yeah. There's 30 teams. Right. It just passed 26,000. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Just passed 26,000. Oh, wow. So in the history of humankind, wow. I'm one of 26, 27,000 people that got to even wear it for one day. And so I don't dismiss that anymore. That's awesome. When I was there, though, remember, I wasn't 30 yet. So I was still, that uniform was cool and wonderful and great and had a great experiences, as you saw in the bio of cliff diving and all that crazy fun things but I was still wearing a mask and so um, it had its incredible points but that's why that platform isn't about me it was a cool thing about being a major league baseball player and I could talk all day about hitting and what it takes and the speed and the talent and all those things but the more important thing is is that that's what God gave me as a platform to help other people it's not about they could have taken my name off the back of that jersey and I wouldn't have cared and the important thing to understand is that what we do is not who we are right. it's it's who we were created to be and it's how we help other people well that's what you've used that platform to help other people and I think that's what's so wonderful about your story is that you took adversity and, and tragedy and horrible situation and turned it into something very positive well so. I appreciate it it was yeah. it was fun and it's still fun the interesting thing that I, I do a lot of keynotes as you guys know and I, I, I've got one coming up tomorrow morning and I've got a big one in Omaha next week and in Chicago next month and so many I, I do that a lot and the number of the topics I talk about the two most requested are the work-life balance and what was it like to be on the Wheel of Fortune and, <laughs> and then the Major League Baseball story and then motivation teamwork <laughs> stuff like that that is awesome you know I love the grace that comes with your humility mm-hmm. I know that comes straight from your faith Amen. I want you to finish this for me I wish I could share what with you kind that no matter what they think or see in the mirror they are created by God in love and they are worth everything so many people it just it crushes my heart because I meet so many people because of they think well I don't have this much money or I'm not on TV I'm not on the radio I don't live in that house I was abused and so I'm tainted goods I'm not worthy of a husband I'm not worthy of a wife I'm not worthy of a family and that couldn't be further from the truth every single human being with a heartbeat is valuable and created to be something and do something incredible. I, I, if I could tell every single human being on this planet that ever lived and ever will live until it's all over that they are worthy and loved, I would do that. Thank you. 
talk to us about your time on Wheel of Fortune. I'll give you the quicker version based on time, but I lost a bet to my son. We were sitting on the couch one day at my home, and my son, who's now 18, he was 11 at the time, and he was in between my wife and I, and I've watched Wheel of Fortune since I was a little kid. And actually, Wheel of Fortune and crossword puzzles were something in the minor leagues that I watched and worked a lot because it kept my mind sharp, because I always wanted to have a good mind of understanding what's a pitcher going to do to me, what's the situation. There's, There's so much more mental than physical in the game of baseball and professional sports. So I was rattling him off, and my son's playfully hitting me. Come on, Dad. Dad, you're going to beat Mom. And then he wanted to figure one out. He's like, oh, you're going to beat me too. So finally, my son, and his he had this cute little voice at the time. He's like, Daddy, save me the last one. I want to get the last one. I said, okay, buddy, you can. It's my turn for dinner. I'm going to go in the kitchen. But I knew what I was doing because from the kitchen counter where I was chopping the vegetables, you could see the TV. (laughs) So I was looking in there, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And finally, I couldn't wait anymore. There was like one tile left, and they couldn't get it. And I'm I'm looking at my wife. like, it's cold. It's killing me. She's like, don't you dare. Don't you say it. So I blurted it out. My son stands up. He's like, that's it, daddy. You're going on the show. I'm like, oh, really? And my wife gave me this look like this was calculated. And I'm thinking, okay, what's going on here? And I said, so I'm going on the show, huh? He's like, yep, I researched it. <laughs> then I said, you researched it? And so my wife said, he really did. I said, okay, how many people get on the show? He's like, over a million a year. And I said, okay, how do you do it? You send in a video or they bring a they bring a bus to your city and you get on and you do like, you know, they got like the touring bus and all that. Right. And so I said, okay, what do we do? He's like, well, we have to make a video. So a month passes. I said, I would do it. He comes in one day from cross country practice. He's in sixth grade now. And so he comes in the door. He's like, did you do it? I said, did I do what? He said, did you make a video for Wheel of Fortune? I said, oh, buddy, I forgot. And he said, well, then you're a promise breaker. I'm like, Ooh. oh. Snap. And it wasn't, it was not disrespectful. It was exactly what I needed to hear. And I said, okay, put your books down. Let's go upstairs. Let's do it. I made the video. He gave me the parameters because he really did research it. And so we finished the video. It's on the iPad. And he says, okay, here's the deal. I want you to know this. I won't do the voice anymore, but you get, he was cute. I'm, you know, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm that father. My son was cute. <laughs> Still cute. So he, he gets ready to press it and he stops. He's like, okay, there's three things I want you to know. I said, okay, tell me. He's like, number one, if I press this button and send this, you will be on the show. I'm like, okay. I said, now understand the odds a million people a year. They do 600 shows a year and it's like maybe you know it's not three at a time yeah absolutely this you know a few thousand maybe twenty thousand maybe whatever and so he said number two when you go on the show you will win and i want there's four people in our family i get 25 percent of the winnings this kid's 11 years old <laughs> he's like, a have genius been, have you been talking to your mother yeah this is my he actually is a genius so i said okay great he said and number three you're taking me out of school this is my idea i'm going to hollywood i said okay i can live with those three because it but in my mind I'm thinking there's no no way but see that's the one thing I love about kids is they're so pure and innocent and have more faith than we do I mean even the Bible says unless you have faith like a child Child, right there you go so sometimes this is that's I don't know a few months past it's around it's around now it's like the anniversary had just oh actually it's coming up so my son's birthday was just the other day on the 7th and this was a few days before my son's birthday I was putting his new bed together my wife my mother-in-law's in town they come in she said did you check the mail I said nice try you can't fool me because we'd actually had an audition come to town. And I went to the audition and it was it, it, down in the plaza and I solved my puzzle for 17 seconds and they gave me this pen that said wheel of food because they had sharpened it so much the orchard had been shaved off. I'm like, okay, this is this is kind of low budget here. They had a cardboard wheel they were spinning and I stood up and it was this overhead projector and they did, I didn't get a call back. There are 50 people in the room and 10 people got a call back in the room and I wasn't one of them. So I told me, I said, Sorry, not going to make it. Not going to happen. This is what happened. He's like, oh, you're making it. I said, Tate, listen, I didn't. He's like, I don't want to hear it. I'm not hearing it. 
said, okay, buddy. And, and I looked at my wife, so I guess it's going to be a good lesson to set up for disappointment. <laughs> so fast forward, and I said, okay, I checked the mail. She's like, oh, you got me. But she knew that I would react that way because what had happened was an email from Wheel of Fortune came. So later on, I checked my email. I said, you sneaky girl. You, kn- you knew there wasn't going to be any mail. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I called the number, and it was the guy that was at the thing. And he said, hey, can you? And I said, is this real? And he said, yeah, can you be here in, in two weeks? I said, you mean to try it one more time? He's like, no, you're on. You're in. Like, you got to be kidding me. This is not happening. So I hung up the phone. And my son was getting ready to run a, a, a meet. So I got my mother-in-law, my wife, my other son would go up to school. And he's there standing with his friends and the meet hadn't started yet. So just what an 11, 12-year-old wants, right, is for you to embarrass him in front of his friends, right? So I run up to him and I said, Tate, you won't believe it. I just got to talk to the guy. I'm going. And you're going to get 25% of the money. And I'm taking you out of school. We're going to Hollywood on Wheel of Fortune. Can you believe it? And the whole time, my 11-year-old, is 12-year-old, is straight-facing me. Like, he's not excited. And he's got his friends around and they're kind of looking like, who is this crazy man? <laughs> talking about and he said look and then one of the most precious so i'm a crier you can tell i think it's great yeah he looked at me and he said listen i told you that you were going to be on the show and besides daddy i believe in you oh oh and i lost it i lost it i lost it i said oh buddy i'll meet you at this finish line (laughs) and i literally took off running to the finish line i didn't say goodbye i just took off but in that moment i realized that here i don't have any faith in a cool moment and if you think about the odds, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have been. But his he knew he didn't know any different. And he knew the whole time. And I go on the show and I make it through and I didn't win the final round because it was geography and I was thinking place and the puzzle was the usual hangout and all that and I would have won a hundred thousand dollars and that's the one I picked and all yeah, that. I, yeah, saw, you know. I saw the impact. And man, I took I took some heat over that. But still, I mean I won like twelve grand in cash and then incredible eight-day trip to Costa Rica that I got a second honeymoon and it was amazing my wife and I got to go on it was so incredible and as soon as the check came in I deposited three thousand dollars into my son's account yeah he got me once I wasn't gonna do it again (laughs) right but but the lesson there again is it's that childlike faith and and again I'm gonna be telling that story tomorrow and be telling that story next week in Omaha because people request it. And and here's the cool thing about it. My youngest is 18. And because of the relationship that we have and because what I learned from my biological father on how to not be a good dad, I committed to being in their life and being a good dad and teaching them my path of faith, always being open and honest with them um, and just having that good relationship, just being there for them and protecting them and loving them to this day. My 22-year-old and 18-year-old sons still call me daddy. And uh, every time I hear him say it, I'm reminded of what I went through as a kid and how I wish nobody would ever have to go through it. But then I'm also reminded of the sacrifices that my mom made and the protection that she gave to us. And because of that protection and love, I get to experience this. I'll end with this. All you moms, or even sometimes dads or men out there that are victims of abuse you are worth something you don't have to stay in it and this isn't all that you have to have in life so get help find somebody that and i know it's scary because you feel like you you can't find a safe place but you can and even though i didn't have that back then i'm living proof that your life can be dramatically different when all you can see ahead of you is hopelessness it doesn't have to be that way there is life after domestic violence there is thank you you're welcome
Thank you for listening to Illuminating Hope, a podcast of Hope House. We would like to introduce a new segment and thank those who support Hope House every month. A special thank you to our newest recurring donor, Jason. Learn how you can support Hope House and domestic violence survivors by visiting hopehouse.net.